Today's sermon text comes from Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise And bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Would you pray with me? Our Father, you have said that you have hidden your truth from those who think they are wise and understanding, but that you have revealed it to children. We ask now that you would give us that kind of a heart, a heart to receive your word and to believe it and to depend on it. Would you do that now for the sake of Christ, your son? In his name we pray. Amen. The United Nations Refugee Agency reported in 2022 that about 100 million people worldwide were considered refugees. Okay, that means they were forced to leave their homeland due to conflict, violence, human rights violations, or sometimes persecution. Okay, this, this idea of being forced to, to live in a new country, a new nation, a new culture is foreign to a lot of people in the West, particularly for us Americans. It's hard for us to imagine feeling so threatened that you would have to leave behind everything you know, your way of living, potentially family, friends, everything that's familiar, just for your safety to go live in a new place. But for millions around the world, right now numbered at a hundred million, something like that is a reality. Okay, we've seen this play out in the news more recently with Ukrainian refugees. Some of this you may have even seen videos of. This may be the closest parallel we have for what it might be like to live in exile. This idea of being a refugee, of of living in a new place, in a new culture. Our passage this morning is a part of a letter sent from the prophet Jeremiah to exiles in Babylon. So that's... 
that's a little bit of the, the context for our passage this morning. I realize we only read a small portion of that, but this is part of a letter sent to these exiles. But in their case, they weren't simply forced to flee their country. They were actually taken captive to live in the very country that had destroyed their homeland. So just by way of a little background here, think about the time 586 B.C., so about six centuries before Christ's coming. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes, destroys Jerusalem, and then deports many of its people back to Babylon. Jeremiah, the prophet, had actually prophesied that this would take place back in Jeremiah 25. This wasn't a surprise to him. But this this time of exile, this time of hardship was actually God's judgment on Jerusalem. They had lived in blatant idolatry. God had warned them over and over, calling them to repent, and they had refused prophets like Jeremiah. So this is a dark time for God's people. Time most of us have a hard time even imagining. And yet it's in this context that Jeremiah, or the Lord, I should say, through Jeremiah, offers a word of hope. Our passage is a part of that hope. Okay, but when Jeremiah brings this word of hope that Graham read just a a few moments ago, oddly enough, many of the people did not want to hear it. Imagine living in the context therein and not wanting to hear a word of hope from the Lord. But the part they didn't want to hear is that this was coming on the Lord's timetable. When you're in exile, you want to get out now. But Jeremiah had a different message. If you would, just back up a few verses just to catch a little more of the context. Look at verses 5 and 6 here to help us to make sense of, of why this would have been a message that they wouldn't have received. Beginning in verse 5, Jeremiah says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Jeremiah is essentially saying, you need to settle in and go on with life. Build houses, get married, have families. Right? When you're living in, as an outsider in the land of your enemy, that's not what you want to hear. Right? You, you don't want to hear settle in. You want to hear the Lord's going to rescue you here really soon. And in fact, that's what the false prophets were saying. If we were to back up a chapter, a guy named Hananiah, a false prophet, came and said, this is going to be over in two years. Right. Just ask yourself, which message would you rather believe you're going home in two years or you're going home in 70 years? Do you notice that at the beginning of the passage? For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. So, so think about this. This is for us. This would be like saying in the year 2092, the Lord is coming for you. I did my math right. Right. Just think about that. That means that and I would put myself in this category. Most of us wouldn't even be here. We won't live to see this happen. 
That's that's the situation that God's people are in. In our sin, right, we want things on our own timetable. They did not want to hear you're going to have to wait for this hope. Right. But the Lord had other plans. But again, just to set the context, this is not an easy time if you're a Jew in Babylon. Okay, it's against this backdrop that Jeremiah offers this message of hope that we read. Okay, and this is not just a message that exiles in Babylon need. This is a message that Christians living today need as well. Even though we're not familiar for most of us, I think I can speak for most of us, we're not familiar with the, the idea of having to, being forced to flee our homeland and everything we know and going to live, right, as uh, as slaves or servants or at the very least not under our own control in another land. Right? We're not familiar with that as Americans, but as Christians, this idea of exile should not be foreign to us. First Peter 1 1, Peter refers to Christians spread across Asia Minor. He calls them elect exiles, elect exiles. OK, and we're not exiles as Christians because we've been forced from an earthly home. We are exiles because we are waiting for our heavenly home. It's a spiritual exile. So like God's people in Jeremiah's day, we too need hope to sustain us as we wait in exile. And I believe our passage this morning gives us just a small glimpse of this hope. Okay, It's the kind of hope that we've already sung about. It's the kind of hope that this Advent season is all about. Okay, So just based on these five verses here, I want to highlight five reasons that we as God's people can hope in the midst of exile, just like people in Jeremiah's day to whom this letter was sent. Five reasons that we have for hope. Okay, number one, we can hope in God in the midst of exile. Number one, because he is sovereign over all things, because he is sovereign over all things. I mentioned earlier, verse 10 sets a specific timetable for Babylon. It says when 70 years, okay, that may seem like a long time if you're in exile in Babylon, but consider Babylon was the world power at this time, right? Feared by everyone. Militarily, Israel has no hope of getting free from Babylon, Right. The situation looks hopeless. And yet the Lord says, I'll give them 70 years and then I'm done with them. He's in complete control, even in exile of his people's situation. OK, the Lord here is not reacting to events. This is prophesied beforehand. He's not scrambling, coming up with a plan saying, oh, I didn't realize Babylon was this strong. Let me let me think up what to do here. He's not caught by surprise. He's completely sovereign over all things, right? This is always how he works. Just, just think about the first advent at Christ's first coming, right? We read in Galatians 4, it says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, and he said, it says he did it when the fullness of time had come. At just the right time, the time he had set, he sent forth his Son. Right? And it's the same thing will be true at his second advent and his second coming. 
Right. It's easy to look around the world and think everything's going off the rails. Right. God's lost control. Satan seems to be getting the upper hand, whether that's just personally, excuse me, or if you just look at the news, you look at what's going on. Acts 17, the Lord says this. Paul, Paul in his speech says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's fixed. He's completely sovereign. Right? He's, he's not trying to decide what to do. He's in complete control over all things. He sent his son the first time in the fullness of time when it had come at just the right time. And Christ will return again at just the time God has set. God isn't panicked. He isn't nervous. And neither should his people be. Right. He's sovereign over all nations. He's sovereign over the future. And the best part about this is he's even sovereign over our salvation here. Notice in verse 10, he says, once 70 years are over, I will visit you. This is God taking the initiative to rescue his people. I will visit you. I will come to you. Ten times in these five verses, he says, I'm coming. I will come. I will restore you. I will fulfill my promise. That's what it means for God to be sovereign over our salvation. Again, this is the, this is the consistent pattern throughout scripture. God doesn't wait for us in our sin to come to him. We can't. We're not even able to. People who are dead in their sin can't give themselves life. That's why it's good news to know he's sovereign, not only over all things, but even over our salvation. The Jews at this time in Babylon, Babylon is like a, a living parable of the enslavement of sin. They can't do anything to free themselves. And God says, I will come to you. This is true for us as well. Romans 6, 6 says this, apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. Ephesians 2, 1, we are, quote, dead in our trespasses and sins. This is not a problem that we can deal with on our own any more than the people of God could deal with Babylon. Unless God, in his mercy, takes the initiative to come to us, we cannot be free from sin's power or penalty. This is why it's good news to hear God say, I will visit you. I will come to you in your sin. Okay, so this is the first reason we can have hope, even in the midst of exile, is one, because God is sovereign over all things, our future, other nations, all nations, and even our own salvation. He's sovereign over our things. Number two, we can have hope because he is faithful to his promises. He is always faithful to his promises, right? And this makes sense. If God is sovereign over all things, then there's no promise he makes that he can't fulfill, right? You and I make promises all the time, even with the best of intentions, and then circumstances come up and we can't come through on them, right? But this never happens for God. When he makes a promise to his people, right, it's a hundred percent sure, Right, this this rescue here from Babylon too, this is not just a random act of kindness. This is a promise he made that he ultimately fulfilled. 
was promised in Jeremiah 27. We won't turn there. But again, this is something God said he would do. And it actually goes back much further. When God first gave his people the law, he set before them two options. He says, if you'll obey, you can stay in the land. And I'll bless you, right? You'll stay in that promised land, in the land of my blessing. If you disobey, this is Deuteronomy 30, he says, you're going to get kicked out of the land. I'll remove you from the land. But then he he also makes a promise in the middle of all that. He says, but even after I take you out of the land because of your own sin, he says, if you'll repent, I'll bring you back. Here, centuries later, God is keeping his word to his people. I will come. I will fulfill my word to you. Okay, you know, it's one thing to say that you believe God keeps his promises or we we can all affirm. Yes, the Lord is faithful. Right. But when circumstances change and our faith is put to the test. Right. It's not as easy to say that in the moment. Right. And think about here, if you're a Jew at this time, you've been conquered by Babylon. You've been taken into captivity. They've destroyed the temple, the very place where you associated with God's presence. You're living in this foreign land. And then you receive the word coming through Jeremiah that the Lord says in 70 years, I'm going to come to you. The question is, will you believe him? Are you, is his word good? Can you wait seven decades for his promise to come true? And can you continue trusting him through that? Right. And this is a question we have to answer as well. We're not, we're not waiting to get out of Babylon, but we have to trust the Lord in the day to day to keep his word as well, don't we? We have to ask the question, do I really believe he's faithful to his promises? A lot of times that's what it comes down to. It's not based on what we can see or what we can feel. It's do I believe that the Lord is able to keep his promises and that he's good to keep his promises. We can say all day he's faithful, but when you lose your job, when you lose a loved one. When the doctor gives a report that you don't want to hear. Someone close to you lets you down. Or just when following Jesus gets hard and it starts to be uncomfortable, the question is, will you still trust him? In your time of exile here on earth, will you trust him through these trials? This is why the Apostle Paul, we went over this in adult core training, has to tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. He says, we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. He's saying, don't just look around at what you can see or feel or what it seems to be, what seems to be the case. We walk by faith. And David mentioned this earlier. Biblical hope is not just a can do attitude. It's not just optimism. Unbelievers can be optimistic. Biblical hope is saying God has made a promise. And in our case, we could say multiple promises. And I'm choosing to trust him. I'm going to trust his promise regardless of the circumstances. We have patterns for this throughout Scripture. Right? This is one of the reasons why, why we teach our children all of these Bible stories. Because God is working the same way over and over. Think of Abraham, 
The Lord tells him, you're going to be the father of many nations. Right? The only problem is he's a hundred years old and his wife can't have children. What does Abraham do? Right? It says he believed the Lord, Genesis 15, 6, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. He simply believed the, the word that the Lord had given for no other reason except he believed God is trustworthy. The Lord says you'll have children as vast as the stars of the, sea, uh, of the sky. Abraham simply took him at his word. There's no earthly reason to believe that except that the Lord is faithful. Or think about here as we as we think about the Christmas story with Mary. Maybe we don't think about Mary as often as we should in terms of her role in it. But think about the promise that Mary received here. This young, nobody, Jewish maiden, nobody knows who she is. And she gets a promise that she, that her son, even though she has no husband, her son is going to be the son of God come in the flesh. She's going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. If that promise comes to you out of nowhere, what's your response going to be? Here was her response, Luke 138. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Miraculously, she just, she believed the promise. Martin Luther, the, the reformer, notes that out of, out of the great miracles of the Christmas story, that this is not the least of them. That Mary believed the promise. She trusted that her God was faithful. Right? This is what it looks like to take God at His word. If you want to have hope, if I want to have hope in the midst of exile, we've got to have specific promises to cling to. Okay, this is, this is why we memorize scripture and meditate on it. We don't just need a vague notion that God is good. In the midst of exile and hardship and trials, we need specific promises to go to. To say the Lord has promised this, therefore I'm going to trust him for that. This is not just true for for kids. We have them memorize scripture. We have them memorize God's promises here. We have catechisms, all kinds of ways so that they can get that in their minds and hearts. But adults need it, too, don't we? We need to have specific promises that we can go to the Lord to and say, I'm trusting you for this, Lord. This is this is the second reason we can have hope in the midst of exile is because God is always faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his promises. Number three, we can have hope because he is working for our eternal good. Because he is working for our eternal good. Look at verse 11 here. The Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Right? This is the, the part of the passage that makes its way onto coffee mugs and bookmarks and pictures. Right? Maybe some of you are worried that I'm going to say you need to take it down. I actually don't think we make too much of this. I actually think we make too little of this promise. Right? Maybe you're thinking, oh great, he's going to tell me to, I have to move things in the den. No, I'm, keep the picture up, but keep the bigger picture in mind. Okay? 
When we hear a verse like this, I think sometimes our reaction is to say, God, you have good plans for me. That means the job's getting better. That means the perfect spouse, the perfect family, perfect health, right? Everything is going to turn out just like I want it to. He's, he's given me a future and a hope. Okay, but again, remember the context here. Where, where are God's people? Right? In Babylon, in exile, 70 years you're going to be in exile. And he says, but don't worry. I'm giving you a future and a hope. Right? That, that's the context that it comes in. Right. In other words, I know your situation. I know based on everything you see, it looks like you've been cut off from me. But trust me, I've got your eternal good in mind. In our trials, you and I tend to think, and this is not just true of us, this is true of all God's people in all times. We tend to think in the short term, don't we? We think of God's goodness. When things don't go well in a particular week, we start to doubt it. But God is playing the long game with us. It's not a game. I don't mean it like that. He is looking long term for our eternal good. Notice in in verse 11 here, he says his plans are for welfare and not for evil. That word welfare can also be translated peace. It's the word shalom, God's favor and blessing. God says, my ultimate plans for you are not for evil. I know you're in exile. My plans for you ultimately are for your good. And you're going to have to trust that. This is and again, this is one of those things. This is just as true for us today. The question is, will we trust that God's heart for us is for our good? Because that's that's a lot of times what it comes down to. Even sometimes when we know his promises, we can doubt his heart for us. Does he really want what's best for us long term? Does he really plan to give us a, a future and a hope? Just just think about how many sins in our lives are rooted in the fact that we don't trust his goodness. We envy other people, what they have, like God is withholding from us. We become anxious during during certain circumstances because we think, ah, he's cut us off. We give in to the short-term pleasures of sin because we think God is withholding something good from us. And this this sounds in the moment like a small thing to doubt God's goodness. But I, I, I love the way John Owen put this. And I think I've shared this before. But he said this. He said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Not to believe that he actually has your best in mind, that he's given you a future and a hope. Right. If we're going to have hope in the midst of exile, we have to trust God's love. Even when we can't see or feel it, we have to trust that he has what's best for us in mind. Right. Again, this, this sounds really simple, doesn't it? Probably not new to you in this sermon. But think of how often as you go through scripture, God has to remind his people of this over And over and over. How many times as you read through the Psalms do you hear, for his steadfast love endures forever? Right? As if God's people couldn't get it once. 
Right? We are, we are forgetful. Our faith is weak. And so he has to drill it into us. My, my plans for you are for your good. This is why I love a passage like Romans 8, where God literally for, for an entire chapter is convincing us of his heart for us. He's intent on that. Romans 8, 28. I'm working all things for the good of those who love me. Even in distress, he mentions all these situations, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or war. You could throw in there in exile. He says, but nothing will separate you from my love. That's the New Testament version of, I've got good plans for you, a future and a hope. Right? This is critical if we want to remain hopeful in the midst of exile. That's number three. Number four. We can remain hopeful because God is merciful to those who truly repent. Because he is merciful to those who truly repent. Okay, as hard as the reality of exile was for God's people here, it would be a mistake to think that they were simply victims of unfortunate circumstances here. Right. I mean, at a human level, we can kind of sympathize with them. We, we, we feel sorry for them. Right. But they were receiving the just reward for their sin. And for about 28, 29 chapters of this book, until we reach chapters 29 through 33, roughly. The message of Jeremiah is of God's coming judgment for sin. This is this is the just reward for their idolatry and injustice. God continually reached out to them, too. It's not like he gave them one opportunity. Okay, They're in outright rebellion. So the question here is not, why did these bad things happen to these good people? Why are they living in exile? They don't deserve this. No, they deserve precisely what they're getting here. In fact, this is what God promised them. This is God being faithful to his word. He said, if you flee from me and run to idols, I'll remove you from the land and you'll go serve other gods in another land. That's precisely what they were doing. And yet look at verses 12 and 13. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. Amazing. People who had rejected him over and over and over and run to idols. And he says, I'll hear you. He says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Here's the Lord's gracious invitation to repent, to turn from sin and to seek him. And notice he he doesn't say, if you'll get your act together. And if you'll prove to me over a few decades that you can stay faithful, I'll come and visit you. No, this is not a reward for their righteousness. He doesn't ask them to to make up for the sins they've committed. He knows they can't deal with their sin problem. He's simply saying, if you'll come to me in sincerity of heart, I'll receive you. Okay? Not a reward for the righteous, a free offer of forgiveness to the guilty. And I want you to notice here, too, a couple of things about this gracious invitation. First, notice that how personal this is. He says, come and pray to who? 
to me. Come and pray to me and you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. When we truly repent, we don't just turn from sin. We turn to God. There's a relationship there that needs to be put right. This isn't a matter of Israel simply saying, just get us out of this fix, God. Because they did that over and over. If you read through the Old Testament, right, that they would they would repent. Right. And the next thing you know, again, they're running after other gods. They're disobeying God. But this is not simply God, us looking to God to get us out of a hard situation. True repentance seeks to be right with God. He's the one we want. He's the one we've offended. Earlier in Jeremiah chapter 2, God calls himself the fountain of living waters. When you truly repent, you turn away from the things of this world to find true satisfaction in God himself. It's a longing to be right with him. If you if you have never done that, if you've never turned from your sin because you want to be made right with God, not just simply that you want a free pass from judgment and then you want nothing to do with God. If you truly want to be made right with God, I want to invite you to trust in him even now. This is the kind of repentance he requires. And it's a free gift. He simply says, if you'll come to me sincerely You can be right with me. And it's not based on anything that you can do or have done. It's based on the fact that I sent my son to die in your place. To take the punishment that you deserve, that we deserve. Right? You, he takes your sin and in exchange you get the record of his perfect obedience. That's the invitation to repent. Put your trust in Christ today. We've talked a lot about hope, but apart from Christ, there is no hope. There is no hope. And this is a living hope. He was he was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. And all this is available simply, he says, if you'll come to me, come to me in sincere repentance. It's 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 God's offer, his undeserved kindness. You know, when you and I hear God say, you'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you felt this way, but I read it and I think, how do I know if I'm seeking him with all of my heart? I mean, that that sounds like God's sitting up in heaven and there's like repentance points that I have to measure up to. Like maybe if I'm repentant enough, then he'll hear me. I don't think that's his point here. In fact, I, I, I agree here with Calvin on this verse. He essentially says no one has ever sought God with all their heart. Right? As long as sin remains in us, our repentance is never perfect, is it? I don't think his point here, Jeremiah's point here is unless there's sinless repentance. No, he's asking for wholehearted, genuine repentance. He's saying, when he says, seek me with all your heart, he's saying, don't come half-heartedly holding on to your sin. When you truly want to be made right with me, that's what it means to come to him with all your heart. When you truly want to let go of your sin, then he says, I'll hear you. I'll hear you and I will forgive you. 
We cannot have God's salvation if we're still willfully holding on to sin. The good news is, too, again, you may hear that and think, well, great. I mean, how can we do that if we're if we still have remaining sin? The good news is even our repentance is a gift. I love this in Jeremiah 24. You don't have to turn there. Jeremiah 24, 7. This is a part of God's promise of hope, a precursor to our chapter. The Lord says this about his people. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. I'll give them a heart to know that I'm the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. All right. So follow the logic here. I'll give them a new heart and then they'll return to me with all of their heart. It's it's all of his grace and mercy. He's going to do that for his people out of his mercy because he knows they can't do it for themselves. God's people, more than they needed to be rescued from Babylon, they needed to be rescued from their own sinful hearts. That's why in a couple chapters, Jeremiah will give what we celebrate every time we do the Lord's Supper. He's going to talk about a new covenant that God makes with his people. A new covenant where God puts his law on the hearts of his people. He changes the desires of them. No longer do they even want to disobey. Now they want to obey what he says. Right? If you're if you're someone living in sin, like his people were then, that's good news. Your hope is not if I could just be faithful to the covenant, then I then God's going to keep blessing me, right? Over and over, Israel has proven they can't do it. So God says through Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm actually going to give you a new heart to follow me. Right? That's good news. For sinful, exiled Jews in Babylon, and it's good news for Christians today. God shows his mercy to those who don't deserve it. That's number four. Fifth and finally, we can hope in God in the midst of exile because he is able to restore us fully. He is able to restore us fully. Look at verse 14. He says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This kind of restoration is not something that exiles can do on their own. The situation looked hopeless, humanly speaking. There's no way they could have delivered themselves from Babylon. But Jeremiah here, in fact, in a previous chapter, or excuse me, a later chapter, Jeremiah actually hears this promise and he says, Lord, how can this be? How are you going to rescue your people from from Babylon? They can't get out from under Babylon. Right. And then the reply comes to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah forgets who he's dealing with. The Lord says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This is the God who spoke into existence heaven and earth, who has all power and all might. That's the God who's promising that he's going to restore his people from Babylon. When you realize that that's who you're dealing with, then Babylon starts to look a lot like Egypt. 
You remember what happened centuries earlier in the book of Exodus when the mightiest world power of its day enslaved God's people. In fact, the Lord says in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, he says this return from exile is going to be so great. People will stop talking about the Exodus. It's going to be a new Exodus. What I'm going to do to Babylon. That's how powerful I am. That's how I am able to save. Right. And after 70 years, the Lord did restore his people. We read about that in the uh, in the it towards the end of the Old Testament, a book like Ezra. Chronicles that God even used a Persian ruler named Cyrus to bring about his plans. Right. But eventually, if you if you follow the story, God's people come under another foreign power. Think about this at Jesus birth. Who's in charge? In Israel, is it the Jews? No, it's Rome. Right. That's why he's born in Bethlehem, because Caesar Augustus sends a decree for all the world to be taxed. Again, God's people, they're in their own land now. And yet they're not completely free. Yes, they're restored. Right. It's no wonder that some Jews expected Jesus as the Messiah to to bring them deliverance from Rome's power. But when Jesus came, oddly enough, he's not that concerned with Rome, is he? Think of the angel's announcement to Joseph. You'll call his name Jesus because he'll deliver his people from Rome. Is that what the angel said? No, he will save his people from what? Their sins. That's what he's coming to do. Just being in the land ultimately isn't their full and final restoration because sin is still an issue there. They've got to be saved from their sins. This is why he took on flesh. This is why he died on the cross. You know, we, we sing the song this time of year, O come, O come, Emmanuel. The second verse is one you won't hear as much in holiday Christmas specials. It says this, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save. And give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. See, that's ultimately the kind of rescue that God's people need. And at his second advent, that's the kind of restoration Jesus will bring us. We will not only be free from earthly enemies, political enemies. We will be free from the very presence of sin and death. And until that day, we walk as exiles on earth, but we are not exiles who have no hope. Right? We, in some ways, we are a walking paradox. We are exiles who have a sure and certain hope. And I'll close with the, the words of 1 Peter 5, where God gives this promise to Christian exiles, and that's that's you and me. He says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, there's that word, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me?
Father, we confess that even though you have given us in your word every reason to hope, that our hope often wavers. We ask now then by the power of your spirit, applying your word to our hearts, that you would strengthen our hope and fix our eyes on Jesus. Give us confidence in his second coming. Even as we remember that you've kept your promises in his first coming. Even as we walk as sojourners here on earth, help us to walk by faith in your promises Promises that will be fulfilled fully and finally on the last day. We thank you that your plans for us are for our good. To give us a future and a hope. Help us now to persevere faithfully in light of this hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.